The Art of Discernment, Season 3, Episode 1, A Biblical Understanding of Beauty. Welcome to The Art of Discernment. I'm Dr. Bob Dixon, Chair of the Communication Department here at the Master's University. Today, I'm with Dr. Paul Twiss. Paul is an Associate Professor at the Master's Seminary and Teaching Pastor at Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. On today's episode, Paul is going to help us grasp a biblical understanding of beauty, an interesting topic. So, so Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's way. great to be here. And yeah, we're, we're excited about this. So let me jump right in. Beauty is a, is a, that's a broad, abstract topic, right? How, how shall we define beauty for what we're going to talk about today? Um, it's very hard to define beauty. And if you survey the literature, all the definitions vary. And one thing I've noticed is that the definition depends largely on whether the person giving the definition has faith in God. So that actually impacts your understanding of what beauty is and and where it is to be found. Um, If I could maybe just define a few characteristics of beauty or parameters to help us move towards a definition. Um, I often say beauty is a transcendental quality, meaning beauty isn't located or limited to the object in which you find it. But true beauty is always pushing you beyond the object itself. So if I find beauty in the mountains or in the ocean, and I consider it and and see it properly, actually what it does is it pushes my heart and my mind beyond the mountains, the ocean, the scene before me. So it's it's transcendental, and it's, it's asking me to consider greater things than the object itself. Another characteristic of beauty which is important is that it relates to both form and content. So we tend to think very much in terms of content, the the thing, apart from how it's actually being presented, the, the form in which it comes to us. And true beauty is often the right combination of both form and content. And we can maybe give some examples of that in just a minute. And the last thing to say, and this is so important, uh, beauty goes hand in hand with truth and goodness. So you've maybe heard people speak before about the the, the good, the true, and the beautiful, or mm-hmm. different order. And Plato first came up with that, and it's it's a time-honored trio, and it's true. We see it everywhere. Where true beauty is found, there's goodness and there's truth. And you can, you can see people who, who understand that combination play with them. I think about this a lot in terms of advertising. People in the marketing world understand how those three things work together, and they, they manipulate, as it were, the relationship in order to get you to, to buy something. Um, so I'll just give an example there. One of my favorite stories that shows how true, uh, what is true and beautiful and good work together I don't know if this this is a true story, but it illustrates the point wonderfully. Um, There was a blind man in Central Park in New York, and he's begging for money. He's sat there in the park, can't see, his hat's on the ground, and there's a sign in front of him, and it says, I am blind. And a guy who's in the marketing world walks by, lots of people walking by him, no one is putting any money in his hat, no one. So the guy in the marketing world picks up his sign and he writes four extra words on the sign. 
puts the sign down, goes on his way to work. Comes back at the end of the working day, man sat there, signs there. Now his hat is overflowing with money. Okay. So the question is, what are the four words that he added? And it is spring. So the original said, sign said, I am blind. Now think about the, the trio, the good, the beautiful, and the true. He's given you the truth. It's true that I am blind. The good, or you might say the, the ethical imperative that he's seeking is, is give me some of your money. Mm-hmm. So the true and the, the good, the, the imperative that he wants to imply is, can you give me some money? What's lacking is the beauty aspect of it. Huh. And so the marketing guy, knowing that the three go hand in hand, he adds the aesthetic principle. It's spring, and by inference, I can't see what you're seeing. I can't enjoy this glorious scene on this day in the way that you can. And now they come together with force, and now people feel compelled to give. Um, Another example, Children's literature wonderfully displays how beauty works in conjunction with true, what is good and true all the time, if it's good children's literature. Right. <laughs> so, so there's different ways of approaching children's stories. And, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis is just the, the master at this, and he understood how these three work together. Good children's literature is really there. It's designed to instruct the young heart, the young mind concerning universal principles that they will one day be expected to to live by. It's training them for when they leave the home and they're grown. And so what it often does, children's literature that's well written, it will take the child to an imaginary world and that and we, we understand it to be imaginary. It's not trying to parade itself as normal uh, or, or real in that sense. And in that imaginary world, it starts to give you what is good and true. But to the young mind, in order to grasp what is good and true, it combines those with an aesthetic, what is beautiful. Very, very simply, the way you see this played out in good children's stories is that the hero of the story who does what is good and who says what is true is often presented in a way that is glorious or handsome or beautiful. Mm-hmm. So think Aslan sure. in Narnia. There's a, there is a philosophical reason why Aslan wasn't a rat, right? We, sure. we, ha- we have yeah. this hierarchy of the animal kingdom, and he's the, he's, the, he's the most morally upright character in the story. He speaks what is true. And, and Lewis wants you, the reader, to latch on to the principles that he's giving. So how does he do that? He brings the beauty aspect in, and he makes this character a lion. And the, the lion, so glorious in his presentation, is the one that we gravitate towards. By contrast, the, the bad guy in the story, if it's a good story, is presented in a manner that is not compelling. And if aesthetically he's not handsome or she's not beautiful, then we, we instinctively just pull away and we don't want to latch on to what they say because the three work together. And so on the flip side, there's a lot of bad children's literature out there 
And one of the things that makes it bad is if the author doesn't take that triad seriously, or I might say, if they don't take their responsibility seriously, they're trying, or they will be training the child in a worldview. And so, the one thing you don't do in children's literature is to present the bad guy as glorious、mm-hmm. in his appearance, because that's sending confusing messages to the child. Honor the triad, bring the three together, and then the principles that you're giving them to learn and to live by are wonderfully clear. And it's because the good, the beautiful, and the true always sit together.、Um, advertisers, I said, they 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 know this. So so what's the what's the thing that they they want you to believe that the car is is a good car? What's the ethical? We、we'll、call it that imperative. Buy the car. We want you to do something. Well, how do I convince you of that? Easy. I present the car with a glorious sunset behind it. The people in the car are so happy; they're smiling. They've got wonderfully white teeth. Always, yeah. And 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 there's an aesthetic there that is compelling. It's telling you it's good for you to own this car. They could show you the same vehicle with the same standards of manufacturing. But they could have a family inside who are at the end of a long day's road journey. The kids are crying. The wife and the husband have just had an argument. This is real life. So reality. This, this is what happens, <laughs> and it's not a sunset in the background. It's pouring with rain. It's the same car, but I don't feel obligated now to buy it because you've taken away the beauty aspect. It's not spring. It's not spring. <laughs> so the three work together, and 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 when you see true beauty. Rest assured that nearby is some expression of what is good and what is true, and so then bringing that all together—good,、uh, the beautiful, and the true—why is that? As a as a person who has faith in God, is because beauty is a downstream expression of who God is Himself. That's why truth and beauty and goodness go together, because they're part of His nature, and that takes us back to the transcendental. Nature of beauty it always pushes you to a contemplation that is higher than the object itself. I'm glad you 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 landed it there because that was the the next question I wanted to ask was simply what what does the Bible say about beauty? I know there's a lot, but just in you know kind of to summarize it, if that's possible.、Um, so so one thing I will say is you search the scriptures, you'll probably find the word beauty fewer times than you would actually like. The argument I just made about God's character, and that's why the good, the beautiful, and the true go together, is a theological argument. In terms of seeing textually these principles at work, I do believe it's throughout the Bible, but you have to go looking for it, and you have to bear in mind the relationship to what's good and true. So maybe some examples: in Genesis chapter one, God creates, and the refrain all the way through is that He saw that it was good. And actually, there's enough. Uh, lexical flexibility with that one word that we could translate. He saw that it was beautiful. Then in Genesis chapter three, the serpent comes in and he starts to distort in Eve's mind what is true. What is true? Did God really say?、Mm-hmm. It's not an accident that the next thing that happens is that now she sees that the fruit was good. Now. The issue is not actually whether the fruit was beautiful or not; it's the fact that Eve was the one doing the seeing, because Genesis one established God as the arbiter 
of what is good or beautiful. And Eve takes that responsibility upon, upon herself, and it comes about first through a distortion of what is true, what God said. And then sure enough, because the three go together all the time, that then leads to her doing the wrong thing, doing that which was sinful, which was not good. Um, fast forward to the New Testament, I said that beauty is a transcendental quality. Interestingly, the way that we live our lives in a, in a very secular age is to not think beyond that which we see. That which we see is oftentimes the limit of our thinking. So the philosopher Charles Taylor, in the, the uh, huge work that he wrote on, on secularization, he talks about the malaise of imminence. The thing that's really close is the sum total of our contemplation, and that makes us very bored. We're not wondered, we're not in awe anymore. Think about the gospel and where it all begins. The transcendent God becomes imminent. That which is full of glory is beautiful, invades our world. And now the transcendent is right in front of us. And so as we trust in Christ and we find our union with him, you can say it opens up a world to us of beauty that beforehand our eyes were shut to. We just can't see because we're spiritually dead the beauty that exists in the universe in the same way that we can see it when we're in union with Christ. And now we have this, this avenue to the transcendent through his death and his resurrection. Yeah, yeah I, I, I was going to say how, we're living in a, in a fallen world. Uh, sin is everywhere. How, do we, how can we trust what we see to objectively say, well, that's a beautiful, that's beautiful, like with a capital B, not, not yes. hey, that's a pretty flower, but right. I mean, beauty, something that is of value, the, the, the way you're describing it. How can we, tr how can we trust our own yes. senses there? That's a really good question. And you, you actually just mentioned the word pretty in passing, and this is an important distinction to make. So that which is beautiful and that which is pretty, they're two different things. Um, beauty is, is transcendent in its characteristics. It goes hand in hand with, with what is good and true. When we talk about something being pretty, we're talking about it having some kind of aesthetic, pleasure-giving characteristic. But it doesn't necessarily mean that goodness and truth go with it, and it's pushing our contemplation beyond itself to, to, to higher things. I, I stress, there's nothing wrong with something being pretty, right? So if I take my wife out for dinner and she puts some makeup on, that's fine. The problem is that we confuse prettiness with beauty. Mm -hmm. And when we start to mistake prettiness for beauty, it gets us in a whole heap of problems. The whole cosmetic in industry is, is, is an example. It, it portrays the model with makeup on, wanting you to believe that that's true beauty. So if you believe that that's beauty, you actually start to believe a lie. That's not actually how she looks. <laughs> There's been a ton of editing that goes in afterwards. And because you've, you've mistaken prettiness for beauty, now there comes this ethical imperative that you have to live up to that. 
and you can't live up to it because it wasn't true in the first place. And so untold damage done, sure. not necessarily by the industry itself, but by us confusing prettiness for beauty. We have to understand the difference. And that was your question. How can we, how can we trust our judgment? I would say there's a lot of value in listening to uh, the community, and by that I mean the church, but also that which has stood the test of time, those that have gone before us. So um, we can see an awful lot of beauty when we read, for example, great works of literature, when we listen to great music. There's a lot of things that have stood the test of time. And I would argue one of the reasons that they're still around today, you know, you can go to the Hollywood Bowl and you can listen to Beethoven being played hundreds of years after that piece of music was written. Why? Because there's a beauty in it and that is that is lasting. So if you listen to the voices of history, there's a fairly consistent testimony of what is beautiful. The things that come and go, they had fleeting value. They may have been pretty, but they probably weren't beautiful. And so I think there's a lot to be said for situating yourself within the stream of history as it relates to what has been affirmed as having having lasting value. I, I've been in museums and stood in front of art that is, as you described, having stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. And, and not all of it, it you know, inspires the way you just described. Some of it does, though, where I'll stop and I'll look at it and it f- feels beautiful to mm. me. Um, it is, it is, and I think it's what you're saying. It, it it puts my mind somewhere beyond just what my eyes see, but it's pushing me towards something else. And what you're saying is there, there's you can have a, an aesthetic, but that's only a, a third of the, what makes something beautiful. Right. And so you look at a aesthetically pleasing picture, or or, or aesthetically pleasing. Listen to music that's aesthetically pleasing. You can you can sense that, mm-hmm. but w- what elevates us as listeners or, or lookers at, at art or whatever to to be moved by it inspired by it is the inclusion of those t- of those two critical components that you that you're talking about and i it's hard to pin down but you know when you feel it you know when you see Absolutely. it you, you go oh this this really is beautiful that's why the definition of beauty is hard in and of itself it it is hard to pin down but we've got some people that have gone before us that have affirmed this this is beautiful and one thing I would say, especially to, to younger folks who are considering beauty, if you stand in front of the work of art or you hear the music that, that centuries have affirmed as being of value and you don't like it, don't be too quick to dismiss it. That might mean that you need to adjust your understanding of what is beautiful. It's a bit like you know, if, if you eat junk food as a diet and then one day I give you a plate of vegetables, I wouldn't be surprised if you don't enjoy it, but keep going with the vegetables. And eventually you start to acquire a taste for true beauty. So, so I think there's some, some labor on our part to learn what is truly beautiful um, in order that we can enjoy, as it were, the, the, the fullest expression of the Christian life. So is there any room for subjectivity in this? Or is it, I mean, you're describing something that there is an objectivity to it. There are things that are objectively Absolutely. beautiful. Does subjectivity enter in at all? Is there room for personal taste at all? Or And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'll let you answer that because I, I think I know <laughs> how you're going to answer it, but, I, but I'm, I'm curious. Well, so, so one thing I say is, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. No, it's not. 
Uh, prettiness is in the eye of the beholder. Beauty is is an objective standard. With that being said, beauty does come to us in many forms. I like music from the Romantic period. I like less music from the Baroque period. There's a difference there, but but both produce beautiful music. So I think that there is some room for personal taste, but I want to push back against this notion that beauty is entirely subjective. Yeah, I I, I knew you were going to say that, and I'm and I'm so glad that you did because I've felt that I've been in in again museums and said, "Wow, that's beautiful." It's not my favorite. Mm-hmm. I I like this right. painter better, but I'm not going to say that's not beautiful. It is beautiful. It's it it. It's inspiring. And it's I think that, I think that's a reflection of the fact that we're all different. So beauty is this standard that comes in many forms, and some forms will appeal to us more than others. That's a reflection of the fact that God has wired us differently. But what's different, I think, is when I think of myself before I was saved and after, uh, the things I thought were beautiful they don't. They're not anymore right, right. to me, and I and I understand why they're not anymore. That, that's a step change, I would say, a step change in your understanding of beauty, because apart from the the rebirth that happens when the Lord saves someone, I think we are woefully ill placed to perceive hmm. real beauty. When the Lord takes a hold of someone, causes them to be born again. Now, as I was saying, your eyes are open to a world of beauty. And I would even say, I think it's a Christian's responsibility to pursue beauty. That was the next thing I was going to ask you is, (laughs) you know, how how should a Christian think about beauty? You know, and maybe the better question is, how should a Christian go about pursuing beauty? Yeah. So the first question, it's really important. It's not just an enjoyment thing. I do think a lot of it is an enjoyment of the life that God has placed before you. But there's actually more to it than that. Um, so going back to C.S. Lewis again, his wonderful book, The Abolition of Man, the first chapter is gold. He doesn't talk in that chapter in terms of beauty, but he is talking in terms of value. And as you analyze the argument, it's hovering around the same discussion that we're having today. And he paints the picture. And you've got to remember, he's writing this during the Second World War when the things that he's talking about are real. He talks about the soldier who's on the battlefield. And he says, the war is happening. So there's the truth. The enemy are approaching. So now here's the, 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 the obligation. What should I do? Your obligation is to stand and fight. He said, what's going to stop? the soldier in that moment from fleeing his post? What's going to cause him to stand and do the honorable thing? And he said, it's not a syllogism. A syllogism is not going to save the day. A syllogism, we're in war, you're a soldier, that's the enemy. He said, that's (laughs) not going to do it. He says, what's going to cause that man to stand and to fight is an understanding of the value that attaches itself to the war an understanding of of what it is to be a free nation, to fight against an oppressive nation. When you give him a value system, now he acts. And so as I think about local church ministry, 
I mean, every Sunday, in one way or another, as I preach, I'm telling the congregation what the Bible says is the the good thing to do, the right thing to do. As as a Christian, I have a responsibility to show them the the glory or the beauty that attends to that obedience. So, so the responsibility for the Christian to pursue beauty isn't just an enjoyment of life, though it is is a lot of that. In addition, this is how we obey. We learn to value, we learn the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of obedience, and that compels us. That compels us to act when things are really hard. I mean, if if persecution were to come to the Western church, using the Lewis analogy again, what's going to stop the pastor from fleeing? What's going to stop the, the congregation from defecting? It's having a grand vision of the gospel. Like, why are we here? What's the value system? That's a beauty thing. And if you can impress your soul with the beauty of the gospel, you'll do anything. You'll stand and you'll, you'll, you'll stand for the cause of Christ regardless of the consequences. How do you pursue beauty? You know, I think a lot of it is just a, a steadfast med- meditation on these principles, you know, we, you and I could today talk about, I mean, we could, we could lay on the table, here are the imperatives that I read this morning in the epistles. And the responsibility is not just to acknowledge these are imperatives that come to me as a Christian and they are my responsibility to obey, but let's prize open these commands and just consider why is it beautiful for me to love my wife as Christ loved the church? Where's the beauty in that? And it's there, but it, it, it requires some, some pursuit of the thought. Why, why is it beautiful for my wife to submit to her husband as to the Lord? There's a beauty that goes with all of these commands. And as we start to see the, the glory in them, now it's almost like, try and stop me. Try and stop me from obeying. I just want to run towards this now because you've shown me the value of it. Here on campus, when you know, I, I teach courses that involve artistic creation, writing specifically, and we have these types of conversations with regard to the value in what you're producing. You know, we've all been to movies that everybody says, "Oh, you got to see this movie; you're going to love mm-hmm. it." And you go to it, and you have high expectations, and you leave, and you say, "It was it was a good story," but then you never think about it again. It's just gone. Then there are other times when you go to a movie and it, it's inspiring. You feel mm-hmm. it on a different mm-hmm. level and it's got to be what you're describing. It's got to be that that trifecta that creates beauty, that put that that does make you feel motivated and inspired. And mm-hmm. then so for, for those who may be watching who see themselves as as creative people or people who want who 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 would like to add to that in the world. What advice would you give them? How, how can you participate in creating beauty for others? Mm-hmm. I think the Bible is a great place to start. It's a wonderful, redemptive history is so beautiful. And you see things happening in redemptive history that speak to the soul. That's not an accident. God wrote this and it, it gets right inside of us. If you, if, you, if you pursue an understanding of redemptive history that really tries to prize apart why did God do it like this? You'll start to see beauty that you maybe haven't seen before. And then I would say be an observer of beauty in the world. 
So going back to the the movie example, there's a lot of movies out there that are, if I can say, pretty, meaning they have really good special effects. They have this <laughs> wow factor that of it's very impressive, and that's what brings the money in. People go and see it for that reason. But you have this feeling after you've seen the movie of I don't care to see that again because there was nothing in there that impressed itself upon your soul. There are other movies that don't have a wow factor. There's not so much the special effects, and yet I want to watch that a second time and a third time because it it did something in here, and the something is normally it hit upon some kind of aspect of beauty that resonates with your soul.、Um, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day when you look through First and Second Samuel. One of the themes you see all the time is that God raises up the humble and tears down the proud. That's how God operates. When we see someone of humility being elevated by virtue of the way they conduct themselves in the world, it's powerful to see. And I would say there's a there's an inherent beauty to that 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 is in our DNA. We just we love to see it. We don't rejoice when we see the proud, arrogant person doing well. But when we see the humble person living a steadfast life of of deference to others, self denial, and they get elevated, it's gripping. Now, just move that across to a short story. I'm going to write a short story, and I'm going to use that principle because I know that it resonates with the soul. You can write a pretty good story just on that one principle, and you can play it out a number of times in the plot structure, and all of a sudden, without the wow factor. This is a story that I want to read and read again, and it plays over in my mind because it's an expression of the beauty that God has engineered in His creation. So, can a can someone who who doesn't know Christ appreciate beauty in that same way? Does beauty is it universal in its appeal? Even though you, if as a non-believer, you wouldn't understand why it's appealing to you. That's it. I think they can. An unbeliever can appreciate beauty, but. It's always going to be limited. Their thought is never going to quite get to where it's meant to get to, which is to God Himself. And as you said, they're never going to be able to explain why, in the fullest sense, they find it so appealing. That's that's interesting. I I what you said about the, nothing can stop you. Like if you understand that 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 that's what you're pursuing and that's your motive, and it's it, it does make you. Courageous to to pursue these things. Yeah, I mean, I I think about this a lot. Again, as a pastor preaching in the local church, I consider that my sermon is in some sense inadequate if all I tell the congregation to do is to submit to this word, obey. I think my responsibility is to tell them you have to obey this and to show them the inherent beauty in the command. And when you are able to put on display the glory of the Christian life, the the beauty of following Christ, it's almost like the work is done apart from giving the imperative. I mean, you've just got people itching now to obey, and so so you know that's a that's a word to to preachers.、Mm. Don't just tell people to obey; show them the beauty of what it is to follow after Christ, and now the Lord will work. Through that to produce much fruit. So, what would you say to someone who who would argue that something can be beautiful without being true and good? 
Uh, they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I want to probe it. You know, you want to look into, you know, the specifics. What, what's the example you're bringing? But in its truest sense, I don't think you see beauty apart from the truth and the goodness part of it. They always go together. And for me, as I've thought about this topic, one of the, the what, one thing I love to do is just thought experiments. You see something and perhaps you see one part of that triad. So then you just say, okay, so if I'm reading that right and that's good, what's the truth aspect? What's the beauty aspect? It's fun to look at the world like that. And sometimes you see, oh, you know what? I read it wrong in the first place. Or sometimes you start to see things you'd never seen before. So what about the flip side of that? Can something be good and true and not be beautiful? Uh, no. Okay. But the beauty can be veiled. So... Isaiah 53 told, tells us that he came with no formal majesty that we should behold him, the servant. He was definitely true and he was definitely good. But the commentary there that Isaiah gives to us is not saying he was not beautiful. He's saying the way we saw him, we didn't see his beauty. He had no formal majesty that we should behold him. Because, it, because of the, again, this goes back to his, his incarnation and his lowly earthly status. We looked upon him and with our, our veiled, sin-soaked vision, we dismissed him. Actually, what was there was a, was a wonderful expression of beauty that revealed itself after when he rose from the grave, we saw it. Look at this glory. But when he came in his lowly earthly form, it wasn't apparent to us. And I think, again, that speaks to our inability so often to see what is truly beautiful. And yet that, that coming in a, in a humble form is beautiful. Is beautiful. But we, didn't, we, we, have, we only could see it in, in, in hindsight. And, and the Christian life, as it were, is to train ourselves to align, align our understanding of beauty more and more and more with what the Bible says is beautiful. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take I'm gonna switch gears slightly here, or maybe not slightly, but but we're here on campus, and and I and I've got I've got to ask, uh, you know, we, we your what your thoughts are on education, and we've touched on it a bit, but I mean, and that's a, education is another big subject, but you know how how we've, we're surrounded by eighteen to twenty two year olds, they're mm -hmm. here, they're 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 pursuing their their passions, their desires, they they want to find their paths in life, um, what what. Would you say to a, a young man or young woman who maybe is just right on the other side of this door um, about honoring God as a student, whether mm -hmm. that's study habits or how they interact with their professors, their 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 roommates? You know, it's a it's a it's a big kettle of fish. But I I feel like we're 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 kind of in the in that arena already. And since we're here on campus, I'm just so curious to hear your thoughts on that. How what yeah. would you say? I I don't know if if in asking that question you anticipate an overlap with the talk of beauty. But there is one. I, I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I, I would assume so because it's everywhere. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It's right. everywhere. Yeah. Okay, so education. Um, in, in Ephesians 6, Paul says to the parents, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Familiar verse. I don't imagine that the students on campus are paying much attention to it now because they're not parents. You need to pay attention to it because that gives the God-ordained philosophy of education forever. Those two terms are distinct. They're not synonyms. So when Paul says, bring them up in the discipline, that first word speaks to um, a molding, a shaping of the malleable soul, ready 
to receive the instruction, which you might say is the information necessary to, to do well in a particular sphere. If I can overlap it with beauty, we began today talking about the characteristics of beauty, and I said form and content are important, and they have to go together. Paul, without stretching too much what he's saying, he says to parents, you need to think about the content, the information. You have to think about the form. You have to shape them to receive the content. And the best education philosophies are ones that acknowledge that, which is to say when you're on campus, yes, you're receiving lots of information that's preparing you for work in a particular field, but don't neglect the being shaped, the being molded, which is very difficult to quantify, to see in tangible ways. But for you to be successful as a student, you have to be willing to be shaped by the environment you're in. So a lot of education today is trying to take a very short, um, a shortcut approach to getting you graduated. And the way they shortcut the education process is to take away the, 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 the shaping and the molding and they just give you lots of information. And at the end of it, they say you're qualified. The Bible would say you're not qualified because you haven't been shaped. Mm, yeah. And so the best thing to do when you're here is make the most of the shaping opportunities, which I think very practically means choose to be highly relational. Don't be the last to show up to class and the first to leave. I got the information. I got the notes. I'm done. I can pass the exam with the information. Be highly relational because the relationships are shaping you. Mm. Um, don't be a student who is always looking to take the path of least resistance. When you take the path of least resistance, which is how we're all wired mm -hmm. in our sinfulness, when you take that path, you are foregoing many, countless opportunities to be shaped. There's a shaping available to you if you sign up to go to the 6 a.m. Bible study. There's a shaping that happens just by virtue of you having to set your alarm clock early and show up in a presentable manner. You haven't got any extra information at the end of it to show, but you got shaped in a small way. There's a shaping that happens when on that same day that you decided to go to the 6 a.m. Bible study, you signed up for an 8 p.m. class. Well, now that's a long day. Praise the Lord, because that long day is molding you. And you got the information at the class, but now you're a different person just by submitting to the, to the, the, the structure around you. You're being shaped by it. And now you're really getting an education. So my advice to, to students here would be think about both of, of Paul's instructions there to parents. They apply to you as, as a learner. Yes, you have to get all the information, but you have to be shaped. And that involves being invested fully in the, in the life of the campus, in the relationships, and not taking the path of least resistance. So be, be comfortable being uncomfortable. Absolutely. Because do hard things. Yeah, yes. that's, that's that's great advice. Yep, Paul, thank you so much for for taking the time with of us course. this morning. It's been it's been phenomenal. I'm I'm inspired. I can't wait to get back to class okay. and start talking <laughs> to my students about Praise what real beauty is. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us for the Art of Discernment, a podcast of the Masters University. You can learn more about the university at masters.edu. Be sure to subscribe to The Art of Discernment wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And if you're watching us on YouTube, subscribe to our channel. If you know someone who would benefit from today's show, we encourage you to share it with them. We'll see you next time.